Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. Uh, my name is Dom Fay. I just have the one co-host with me today. Sue Grimmett is here. Uh, well, Peter Cat uh, is enjoying some well-earned time overseas on a walking holiday. Uh, but Sue, we're sitting down today for a very, uh, very important conversation. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. And one thing about this podcast is I've got to meet so many people I admire and for whose work I'm very grateful. And that is certainly true today. It definitely is. Uh, Henry Reynolds is an Australian historian and one of the leading researchers into the history of frontier conflict between European settlers and Indigenous Australians. He has written extensively on the subject with books such as Why Weren't We Told? A Personal Search for the Truth About Our History, The Whispering in Our Hearts, and our most recently Truth Telling, History, Sovereignty and the Uluru Statement. Uh, he joins us now. Henry Reynolds, thank you so much for, for making time for the podcast. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Uh, we, we are so much looking forward to this conversation that, that does lie ahead. It comes at a very timely uh, moment in Australian history as we record with the, um, the, the referendum on the uh, voice to parliament approaching now very rapidly. Um, I'm just curious, before we get into the conversation any further, what is this time of, of Australian history looking like for you? Are you finding yourself engaging much in, in the campaigning for, for the Yes Voice? Well, yes, um, I, I, I've done a, a number of, I mean, I've talked here and there. I was uh, recently in Brisbane. I did a U3A and they have just recorded that and put it up. I uh, spoke about it uh, at a U3A in southern Tasmania. I uh, have, I talked about it, obviously, in, recently in, in Townsville. And um, yes, I uh, have written pieces for. I don't know whether you know of the uh, of the uh, what, what do you call it the the blog is it? I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, but John Minajew's Pearls and Irritations, the daily um, a collection of extremely significant essays by a wide range of people. So I write right. That's where I mainly do my writing. Although I had a piece in both the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age last week. So, yes, I, I, I've been doing that sort of campaigning. Uh, mm. I haven't gone out door knocking yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a bit more about that later on. Obviously, as we record, it is a topic that is um, proving incredibly divisive in Australia. And, and so before we go in any further depth on it, we actually want to um, spend quite a bit of time with your work on the the actual history in this country, which I've got to say, I think many of us um, probably feel like we have a sense of, but um, but then only to discover again and again just how little we actually know. And your work has been profound in that. Uh, I should provide a bit of a warning ahead of, of delving into the conversation um, that as we are looking at Australian history, there might be language used in context uh, that we wouldn't use today. Uh, and we'll also be exploring stories and content relating to the colonisation of Australia that might be distressing for some listeners. So um, we thought we should put that warning at the start. Um, but as we jump into this, Henry, uh, obviously here on, on this podcast, justice, healing, truth-telling, these are central themes that we are constantly exploring and they seem to be at the very heart of your work too. Um, and I, I was thinking as I was uh, looking through your, your latest book that all of us who've grown up in Australia have been on our own particular journey of understanding, um, or maybe misunderstanding, as is often the case, Australia's colonial history. Um, I, I know I certainly feel like I was handed a weird blend of kind of racist assumptions from some people in my life or 
the whitewashed versions of colonization you get at school, um, and just a very limited understanding of of the pain and trauma caused and how that can be carried for generations. So I think for many of us, the journey towards unpicking all of these various threads to see what is actually the truth has been a a long personal one. Um, And I know this was the case for you also beginning back in North Queensland. I I thought it might be helpful to begin by hearing a little bit about your awakening in in this space. Yes. Well, I, uh... I found myself in North Queensland in uh, the end of 1965, uh, having spent several years in Europe. Margaret and I got married, as you did in those days. (laughs) We were quite young. We got on the big white boat the next day and went to Europe and spent almost two years mainly teaching in London and also having uh, a baby uh, at the same time. And we knew we had to leave England uh, for a variety of reasons, but mainly because if you stayed more than two years in those days, you had to pay English tax. And so I'd been looking for jobs and um, without success, but suddenly out of the blue, I was offered a job at this very new, uh, very small uh, university college in Townsville. Now, being in London, I knew Townsville was sort of one of those provincial cities in Queensland. I thought probably about where where um, Bundaberg or Maryborough are. And um, of course, I discovered indeed it was a very, very long way north. You know, it was a thousand kilometres north of Brisbane and a long, long way from Tasmania. So we ended up there uh, and found it a, a, a dramatically different place. Uh, for many reasons, but the most significant reason was that uh, there was a very significant population of both Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. It was a particular moment uh, in the history of um, of those those uh, northern cities. Um, for at least a generation or two, most uh, of the Aborigines had been rounded up and put on missions and reserves where they weren't allowed to leave. Uh, Very few of them lived in the towns, which was unlike the 19th century. Um, And the Torres Strait Islanders, for the first time, had been allowed to come to Australia a few years before to work on the railways. And so for the first time, the young men bought their families and you, you got a significant Torres Strait Island population in mainland Australia, in both Cairns and Townsville. And at the same time, uh, people were being uh, were being pushed off the great, the vast pastoral uh, stations in the hinterland because of equal pay and uh, changes in in uh, technology. So, for the first time, you had a significant uh, First Nations population in the cities, and that caused a lot of conflict. Uh, you know, daily, you, you know, if you if you spent your time as we did walking around because we in those days didn't have and couldn't drive a car. So we walked around a lot and we saw a lot of a lot of personal violence. And um, we realized that this was a very, very different world to the one we'd grown up in. And um, that was the really the beginning. Uh, it was a response to the environment. Now, Margaret was and still is much more of an activist than I I am or was at the time. 
And so we got very much involved in the actual, you know, in, in the politics of the town, particularly the politics uh, regarding race. And so um, uh, that was really where I began. Uh, I'll tell you two stories. Uh, one, her story, the second, my story. Now, very soon after we arrived, she was pushing our son, little boy, up the, the lower Flinders Street, you know, the one main street of Townsville. And in those days, uh, there still are lots of pubs, but they, they had, you know, swinging doors. And as she was passing one pub, suddenly a young black man was thrown out of the pub and landed on the ground and hit his head on one of the veranda posts. And she immediately went into the bar, which women didn't do in those days, and said to the barman, quick, quick, there's a man, poor man here, he's, he's hurt his head. And the barman looked at the, the, the other blokes who were drinking, and a lot of them used to drink in the morning in those days, and he said, yeah, this here Sheila wants us to help the nigger. And they all just laughed. So she went out and she hurried up to the post office, you know, to a public phone, which is all you had in those days, and rang the ambulance. And they said, uh, she said, oh, look, there's this man, he's lying on the ground and I think he's hurt. And they said, is he Aborigines? Is he an Aborigine? And she said, yes. Oh, she said, he's just probably drunk. And um, she then rang the police and grudgingly they said they would go and see. That's one story. The second story was I was able to visit Palm Island, which was a big Aboriginal settlement just off the coast, almost like a suburb. But people until very recently hadn't been allowed to leave there. And I visited with the local senator, uh, Jim Keefe. And we went round the village and we looked at everything. The superintendent was a bit, you know, a bit awkward because this was an official visit by a senator. And Jim said, oh, now well, that building over there, what's that? And he said, oh, it's the jail. And said, Jim said, could we have a look inside? And he said, oh, yes, all right. Went over and opened the door and there were two two doors and one, one in front of us, one beside us. And he said, now that one's empty, but I'll show you in here. So he opened the door. And in the in the in the cell, uh, bare floor, rather dirty, a mattress, dirty mattress on the on the ground, a bucket in the other corner, and on the mattress were two little girls in big, ill-fitting dresses, and they looked horrified that these white men, these these migloos, had come in when they were in jail. And Jim said whatever are these girls doing in jail? And the superintendent said, oh, he said, they were swear, they swore at the teacher. <laughs> so this was um, astonishing, but uh, it was an indication of just how different the world was up there. I had been a school teacher for three or four years, and I knew some teachers who wouldn't mind being able to put kids in jail, but it was an astonishing thing to come across and for it to be treated just as such a normal thing to happen. Mm. And, and look, there's so many um, paths to, to follow in that. It's it's just stunning to hear that that's happened at all in human history, let alone as, as recently as you're speaking about. But um, I'm thinking as a podcast that is based in Brisbane and has a real Queensland flavour to it, um, I think your research on on... Queensland's history um, in terms of the, the frontier wars 
is something that probably a lot of us up here don't have a lot of knowledge of. Can you give us a little bit of context about, you know, in the overall um, story that was colonization in Australia, what was the, the particular Queensland flavor to it all? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, let me, uh, on a step towards that, let me explain that um, I realized that um, if I was to, and, and remember I was teaching Australian history, two small classes in my first year. And I soon realized that if you just use the textbooks, and I had one of the major textbooks of the period, it had been set because I was doing a course that was based from, from Brisbane. We didn't become autonomous for a couple of years. Um, and uh, I realized that if um, I just taught the straight out Australian history, my students would get the impression that nothing of importance had ever happened in North Queensland. There was almost nothing in the history books about North Queensland. Now, most of my students had never left North Queensland. Uh, they were locals. They, that was their world. They were you know, proud Northerners. But um, there was nothing in the history. So I felt I had to do something. And so I did. And I began putting in uh, a three-week segment, which was just local history. Now, Quite clearly, if you're going to teach local history, you had to teach about uh, Aborigines and Islanders and the relationships they had with, with, with white people. Uh, now, what did you do? Where, where did you go if you wanted to do that? Now, the book in question, some of your older um, um, listeners may remember it, Gordon Greenwood, editor, uh, Australia of Social and Political History. It was the most widely used textbook, multi-authored, and it was uh, reprinted 12 times between 1955 and 1975. Now, it was a good book in many ways, but there was nothing about the Aborigines. They, they, there was two passing mentions, and that's all. And they weren't even in the index. Mm. So what did you do if you wanted to put the Aborigines and the Islanders into the story? Well, had there been a lot of books, I would have gone and read the books and done it. But to do that, you had to go to the original sources. Mm -hmm. And the most important one, that, and remember, this is a long way away from Brisbane, from the Oxley Library. There was no public library in that sense. There were no records. There were no archives. There was no museum. There was no historical society. So to, to, to do the local history, you had to go and find it yourself. And the most important source that I found was that in Bowen, that small town south of Townsville, they still had the hard copies of the first newspaper in North Queensland, the Port Denison Times. And so I went down to Bowen and sat in the, uh, you know, in the, in the council chambers and read the hard copy of this first newspaper from North Queensland. Now, there was no doubt that it was full of stories about the Aborigines. Um, it was also full of the violence. Now, that's the uh, astonishing thing. No one at the time doubted that it was a very violent procedure, colonization. No one tried to say, no, this, is, this, this, is, this can't be true. They knew it was true. The debate was whether it had to be that violent. The debate was whether 
this was inescapable and there were people who were deeply disturbed and said so but there were many others and probably a majority who said if you can't accept that colonization depends on replacing these people and using violence to do it you better get back on the ships and go back to england because that is inescapably part of colonization yeah yeah so not only you see was there confirmation of the violence uh, there was confirmation that uh, this was a great moral issue that people knew was was there. So, it, it, as I say, it, and that they were the things that simply was lacking in the history. It wasn't just that, that book. This was a period when a lot of books had been published because Australian history was suddenly being taught all over the country. Mm. And a lot, lot of, of, the, of the leading historians produced history books, about six or seven of them. And uh, by and large, they just didn't didn't say anything much about this conflict. They often had a bit about the very early period and up to and including Tasmania. But by and large, the whole story of the Aborigines and violence and conflict had disappeared from Australian history. Mm -hmm. I certainly grew up with where it had just disappeared. And I think that's one of the features of all of what I've read of your work, Henry, is is that revealing of saying you actually this idea we'd had that um that was back then, people didn't know any better. Um, it was just accepted that that's what happened and that was part of things. And so we've got to move on. That's just the way people thought back then or else they didn't really know. All of that is debunked when you actually look at the original source material. You yeah. actually find lots of protest. You find the British Colonial Office also sending protesting type um, um, messages in mail across and concerned mail about what is happening. You find individuals in um, all of these frontier societies actually speaking out and naming what's happening. So this idea that it was just accepted back then is a total lie. And it it, it doesn't do justice to indeed the uh, to those societies uh, right. who who realised you know that this this was a this was an everyday concern for people. Uh, you couldn't avoid the question. But the interesting thing is I looked at the, um, I mean, two, two quick things. Now, uh, having seen that in, in Greenwood et al, uh, social political history, there was nothing about the Aborigines, I decided to look at all, as many book reviews as I could find. And there were about six of them, I think. And if you weren't in the book, you probably, as a prominent historian, you reviewed it. Now, not one, not one of the reviewers said, hey, wait a moment, where are the Aborigines? Not one of them. And I also looked at the comparable book published at almost exactly the same time uh, about New Zealand, Keith Sinclair's A History of New Zealand. And the, the difference was astonishing. I mean, the first third of the book was about Maori New Zealand. And the rest of the book was four. And there were not just was there one or two index entries, there were pages of them. So th this was an astonishing, astonishing thing. And as you, some of you may know, this was called out at much of the time when I was beginning to find these things about New Zealand by the great anthropologist, Bill Stenner. 
and in a, a, a lecture, one of the one of the um, one of the lectures, what are they called? Um, the lectures for the ABC in 1969, called "After the Dreaming," he accused Australian historians of practicing a cult of forgetfulness, uh, and uh, you know, celebrating the great Australian silence because he knew because he was an anthropologist who had worked in the remote parts of Australia, that there was something profoundly wrong about the history of that era. Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's quite chilling when you think about the fact that the solution that, that many seem to have for our current uh, issues in, in terms of the, the divide um, between those who want to see action and reconciliation and, and those who don't, is that, that there seems to be this desire to forget again. It was in the past. Let's move forward. We don't need that anymore. Why would we bring bring that up? As if it's already been dealt with rather than sitting there like an, an open, festering wound. And you do write really beautifully in the book um, about how much this contrasts, this desire to forget that part of our history with what seems to be a central element of Australian history when we come to moments like Anzac Day. Um, you, you write in the book, I was aware that black armband history was deeply disturbing and I understood those many people who took the view that a troubled history was best forgotten, that it was preferable to look to the future and not to dwell on the past. But it was always hard to equate those sentiments with that most revered phrase in Australian history, lest we forget. It's yeah. a stunning um, dissonance, isn't it, between our desire to to remember what has happened and honour the, the sacrifice and, and let it hold us to account compared to this desire to, ah, oh, let's just push that into the background. Yes, absolutely. And remember, we, we I mean, of all places, we, we really do take uh, our, uh, you know, what we owe to those who died in war very seriously. You know, we've got war graves all over the world that are looked after and managed by Australia. Um, and we we still we go and find bodies in under farmland in the western front and dig up the bodies and identify them and give them military funerals i mean it is quite extraordinary uh, and every single person who died in war going right back to the uh, 19 to the eight no, sorry to the 19th century right back into the 19th century uh are memorialized in the war memorial as you know no doubt know every name and yet the war memorial itself is very reluctant very very reluctant to deal with uh, the australian wars and that is going on i mean there's a, there's a real tussle over what the war memorial should do about it mm. and it's a really interesting point that 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 isn't almost seen as a war. And I know that's something you've done wonderfully in your work is highlight the fact that the way that the the colonisation was thought of at the time, clearly the tactics being employed suggest that, that the, the Europeans involved essentially did think they were in the middle of a war. Yes, and indeed they said so. Now, remember in the early period, most of the, the conflict involved uh, soldiers. Um, it was the British, you know... Uh, New South Wales and Van Diemen's Land uh, were, you know, i.e. Tasmania, were convict colonies, so they had to have a large military force. And uh, they were involved in the conflict. I mean, in the earliest period, in the, particularly in the, as the settlers pushed up the Hawkesbury Valley in 
north of Sydney, and then in Tasmania, uh, the military was involved. Most of the governors were ex-military men, and uh, they recognised it as war. And they, quite a few of them, recognised it as guerrilla war because the, the term guerrilla war had come out of the conflict in Spain and, and Portugal with against the French and Napoleon. Uh, it just means a small war. And the conflict between the French military and the Spanish peasants, you know, terrible, violent conflict, uh, was a guerrilla war. And uh, when they came to Australia, they talked about a guerrilla war. So, yes, there was no doubt it was it was a war. And they said so. And periodically that happens. I mean, people were saying it in Queensland, uh, in newspapers, in speeches to Parliament. Uh, you know, we are at war with every tribe on the frontier of, of, of the colony. So they... Your contemporaries thought that, and I don't think they necessarily. I don't think there was any reluctance, any squeamishness about talking about it as a war. And that that is the the difference between. I mean, one of the big differences in doing this work, particularly work getting into the records of the nineteenth century, was the profound difference in the way in which they understood, talked about, and debated. Uh, colonization and the violence compared to the squeamishness yeah. of the historical profession right up until uh, the late 1960s yeah. uh, that that really is hard to understand now people think my goodness me those all, all those old historians must have been very conservative right-wing people but they weren't they by and large were activist left-wing radical men mainly men, uh, who were undoubtedly left-wing Labour, and quite a few of them had been members of the Communist Party. They were, mm. they were, ra they were radical nationalists. Mm. But they had this absolute blind spot when it came to the Aborigines. And I didn't get any encouragement at first at all. Uh, I, uh, when I had, uh, when I had uh, done my... Uh, this, I, I gave my first... Uh, lecture talk to the profession you know I was very young came from North Queensland no one knew me or the college and I, uh, I, I I was finishing up work that I'd done in Tasmania and so I'd given a paper about Tasmanian history and the leading person who I mean really the, the, the main gatekeeper the editor of the major journal you know who who could decide your future by accepting or rejecting your your articles. He said to me, well, now, young fellow, what are you going to do now? You're up there in North Queensland. And I said, oh, I think I might do something about the Aborigines. He said, good God, he said, there's not much in that is there. Mm -hmm. Now, this, this, was a, this was a, as I say, a, a radical left-wing activist politician. And yet he just didn't give me any encouragement. Now, I it wasn't that I was all that different. It's just that it's where I lived, not who I was. And I knew that you couldn't avoid those questions because I knew it was there with us every day. 
Mm. And so uh, that was the great difference. And that's why I then began um, in 1970, I started my basic research. Now, my problem was I had to, I had to uh, convince myself that what I had discovered in North Queensland was general, was, was Australia-wide. And so I spent, you know, the next 10 years going around the whole of Australia, uh, every archive and public library, reading all the newspapers, the, you know, the 19th century newspapers. And, of course, uh, there are differences, which I'll come to if you, if you wish. But wherever you went, whether it was, you know, Torres Strait, whether it was southern Tasmania, whether it was... Uh, you know, eastern coastal New South Wales, whether it was the Kimberley and the Pilbara, it was the same story. Uh, and so uh, that's why um, when I'd done all this, I sat down and wrote The Other Side of the Frontier mm. because I felt having spent all this time, I mean, on the public purse, doing all this work, I had to try and bring it all together. Mm. And when you say it was the same story everywhere you went, how how would you sum up that story? I mean, because we, we've obviously all had various versions of the story told uh, told to us in school, and depending on what decade you went to school, it would probably vary wildly. But yeah. but what, how how would you how would you speak about what that story you found everywhere in a in a nutshell was? Well, in a nutshell, it it all began with the way the British decided to colonise Australia. It was done in a great rush. They knew almost nothing about it. And people thought, oh, well, Cook was there in 1770, so of course they'd soon arrive and, and, and settle, or conquer, whatever you like, word you like to use. But that's not the case. Cook also um, circumnavigated New Ze two islands of New Zealand and mapped it and everything else. But it was, it was, um, it, it was 70 years between Cook coming and the British settling in New Zealand, by which time, you know, things were different. They knew a lot more about New Zealand. Australia was settled very, very quickly. Cook, I'm sure, had saw no point in settling Australia. It was only the loss of the American colonies that meant they suddenly had to find somewhere else, uh, you know, particularly to, to deal with this massive population of convicts they had. Mm. And so they did it in a hurry, and they did it without much knowledge of Australia. They believed, and, you know, the, the few people who had been with Cork, particularly Joseph Banks, mm. great scientist, very rich, president of the Royal Society eventually, uh, he told them that most of Australia was uninhabited. And uh, he, you know, he gave his reasons for thinking that. And so they came uh, in a way that was quite contrary to what they had done in North America, both the parts, the, the 13 colonies that became the United States and, the, and Canada. Uh, that is, they arrived in North America accepting that the Indians had a form, that the Indians actually owned their land, whether they were hunters and whether they were farmers, uh, they had a form of land ownership called Indian title, and they also ex exercised a form of sovereignty. And that they, they, were, they were part of the law uh, that arrived with the British. 
So what happened in North America was that treaties were signed from the very earliest days, many, many treaties in both US and Canada, and they also recognized the form of, of Indian title. Now, that meant that this, you know, the, the settlement was very, very different. Not that there wasn't much violence, but Canada indeed is profoundly different to Australia. Um, but they arrived in Australia with the assumption that there weren't many Aborigines at all, that they didn't actually uh, they did they didn't actually own the land that because they wandered over the surface, uh, they weren't really in occupation of the land, and they also were so primitive they didn't have any laws or customs which could be recognised as seen as having you know sovereignty government over the land. Now that predetermined much of the violence that took place because there was no way, you know, the Aborigines had nothing to bring to a negotiating table because all the land had become crown land on the instant over the whole half of the continent that they claimed on the 7th of February, 1788, the whole of the land became the land of the crown. And secondly, that these people just became British subjects because they had no government or or laws of their own. Now, that was the fundamental flaw which made violence almost inescapable. Mm. So if you want to understand uh, what went wrong, you have to take your story back to Britain. Mm. Uh, it could have been quite different. It's it's such an audacious claim, isn't it, to 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 come across and say yes, this all belongs to the crown, and to have done it so swiftly. You'd yeah. wonder why we haven't in Australia grown up thinking, looking back, and going, "My goodness, how can anyone just you know astonished at the audacity of just saying that?" And I I noticed I was surprised by this quote that you have of Joseph Banks when he was asked by the committee, "Have you or one of the British committees? I'm not sure which one, but he was asked, "Have you any idea of the nature of the government?" under which the native people lived, and Banks responded, none whatever, nor of their language. And then mm. when, he, when he was asked, um, basically, do you think that they would resist, um, he said, certainly not. I'm inclined to believe they would speedily abandon the country to newcomers. Yeah, that's okay. right. Amazing. I, I just, yeah. that's not something that we were taught in school, that, no. that on that assumption is this country in which we're all living, that it could be so swift, so flawed, um, and so ignorant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you see, he said he, he thought that, uh, and he was a bot. You know, he's a, he was a botanist. He was a great scientist. Um, he said that we we didn't find anything. I mean, they spent quite a lot of time at Botany Bay. You know, this is before they got shipwrecked and spent a lot of time in the Endeavour River. But he he said there was nothing. Uh, there was nothing you could eat you know, in, in Botany Bay, and there was no sign of any uh, planting of crops. You know, they didn't, they didn't have agricultural horticulture. Uh, so you have to assume, uh, he said, that they mainly lived by what they could gather from the sea. That's why they were confined to the coast and only in small numbers. And if there was no cropping or agriculture down at the coast, we have to assume there was none inland. Mm -hmm. Now, when the first fleet arrived, 
they came across there were numerous surprises one there were far more people than they expected and two they realized that they that, that they seemed to be people inland because you could see smoke on the blue mountains and the first time philip saw you know, smoke on the blue mountains he sent an expedition looking for it looking for the fire to see what they'd been eating and uh, he he came to the conclusion well maybe they just carried fish back from the sea but of course as soon as they started moving out not only did they realize there were far more people but they realized that wherever they went there were more more and more and more people uh, and clearly um, it was a much more populated place than they had been led to expect. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the difference in uh, Australia's particular story compared to, I think probably I grew up believing that the English colonising forces were similarly brutal and ruthless everywhere they, they went, and there's elements of truth to that. But there does seem to be something particular about the Australian situation that was particularly inconsiderate, particularly um, brutal, and and kind of. I mean, you mentioned rushed earlier, but just haphazard, almost in a sense, in in how they went about it. I mean, we you've mentioned Canada, you've mentioned America, you've spoken a bit about New Zealand, and and these were also horrible stories. But we see stories of treaties and things like that from from long ago. What, what was it about the Australian story in particular that led to to such a a brutal approach well you see they didn't think that the aborigines had anything that you could have a treaty about um, now the difference is Canada Canada had treaties from the very earliest period but let's just compare like with like that is the settlement of the great grasslands from the from the lakes to the Rockies uh, a very large area quite obviously uh, similar with the, I mean, uh, you know, cold, cold um, grasslands, unlike the warm grasslands of North Queensland, of Queensland, but similar in, in many ways, settled at much the same time by uh, two societies that were remarkably similar, the same law, English law, uh, the same, uh, you know, by that, that period, uh, increasingly self-governing colonies. Now, there was a great deal of violence in Queensland. There was almost none in the settlement of the, of the prairies in Canada. It was all done by treaty making. Uh, the the uh, Royal Mounted Police uh, actually carried out the negotiations and they signed treaties from 18, when, when they became self-governing from 1870 to 1920. And uh, they're called the numbered treaties, and they still exist. And each of these treaties meant that the Indians accepted that they would have to live on reservations, but in return they would get you know, certain things, you know, a whole list of things. And um, as I say, there was no conflict. Now that's partly that the uh, Ameri the Canadians wanted to make sure they were not like the Americans. And they certainly didn't want to pay the expense of the of the prairie wars that had taken place to the south, and also the because the bison had been almost wiped out, the Indians could no longer live live in the way they used to. But the numbered treaties meant that 
the ho that whole part of Canada was settled without violence. Uh, at the same period when there was violence everywhere in Queensland. So it, it is a very, very, I mean, Canada is a very, very uh, sobering message for what might have been done in Australia. Yes. But there wasn't, you know, there wasn't anything legal way you could do it. You see, the assumption was the, that the Indians had a form of internal, internal sovereignty. They were, as the American Supreme Court said, in the 1820s, they were domestic dependent nations uh, and they had their own form of government. They couldn't have relations with other countries, but they could run their own affairs using their own laws and customs. Yes. And so uh, there was, they were people you could negotiate with because they had something to negotiate with. They owned the land and they had a form of government and you could have, therefore, you could have treaties with them. Uh, and that that was the difference. Now, there's no doubt that that the British realised uh, that they had made a mess in Australia, and particularly in Tasmania. That's why uh, they started the settlement of New Zealand with a treaty, and that was the advice of the governor of Tasmania, who had been there for 12 years. He said, "You must begin with a treaty." Otherwise, you will have the, the, the violence that we experienced in Tasmania. And hence, in New Zealand, you started with the Treaty of Waitangi. Mm. I, I was interested also to read the, the quote from Governor Brisbane, in, that was 1821. So just thinking about that kind of context of learning from what has already gone before, um, uh, he remarked that we have taken the land from the Aborigines of the country and a, remun a remuneration ought to be made. And Tasmanian's governor, Arthur, said something, you know, similar too. And that, that awareness that is actually on record, you know, um, is is something that, that hasn't been carried through in communication. And I also think looking at Queensland, if we're going to focus just on Queensland for a second again, um, you know, Sir Thomas Brisbane then is, you know, around 1821, it was a wild old place, Queensland, you know, the um, the frontier in Queensland. We know, I know of the violence in Queensland from some research into domestic violence um, and, and what women experienced on the frontier. And we know there's um, a comment I heard recently was, was the definition of mateship, you know, something that we hold dear in Australia. Um, the definition of mateship is someone who keeps your secrets. And doesn't that ring true for colonial Queensland that we have, you're keeping your secrets about the way you treat women, but you're also keeping secrets about the way you're treating Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in the far north? Because before Federation, I gather that, you know, the governance from Brisbane, it's such a huge expanse of area and there just was not the reach of, of governance and what was going on in these far places yeah, was, yeah. was a law to itself to an extent. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Queensland became self-governed, as you know, on the last days of 1859. Um, I think there were only 10,000 settlers um, in the whole of the place, and they only occupied uh, the southeastern corner and the Darling Downs. Um, and this vast area, you know, uh, which, which had big Aboriginal populations, uh, it does seem as though uh, they had not been greatly diminished by smallpox. Uh, I mean, the settlement of the southeast out of out from Sydney uh, was probably greatly facilitated by the fact that 
uh, those communities had been devastated by, by the smallpox epidemic of the early years. Smallpox, of course, you know, in uncontacted un populations had it up to a 90% mortality rate. Mm. And so uh, Queensland was a different story. Uh, there were never enough white people. Remember, the British poured in 150,000 convicts, mm -hmm. uh, all adult, uh, all late, capable of, of work and labouring mm -hmm. into the uh, southern colonies, into Tasmania and New South Wales. Mm -hmm. uh, Queensland, uh, you know, by and large, there was always a shortage of, of white people, and that's, in a way, um, why they use the native police. Now, the native police, you know, it's a terrible story, but uh, in a way, it, it uh, you see, the, the, pastoral, the pastorals themselves became totally dependent on Aboriginal labour. And people say, oh, they killed them all. But no, well, the last thing they wanted to do once they had established themselves was to kill their workforce and to kill the women they could have access to. So right across Queensland, uh, much of the work is done by the Aboriginal, the young Aboriginal men and women who became great stockmen. And much of the, uh, of the, bio, you know, the pushing of the frontier ahead was also done by young Aboriginal men. Uh, so that it, it, it's a very different story from the idea of the, of the white pioneers because much of the pioneering was done by black people. Mm, mm. Mm. That's a really, I'm, I'm just stunned by that, that comment, Sue, about mates keep each other's secrets. That, that's what mateship is that you reflected on there as well, Henry. And uh, the thing that struck me as you were speaking was that a line that's come out of the, the no campaign quite a bit lately around the referendum has been, if you don't know, then vote no. Um, yeah, yeah. Almost encouraging or, or, or celebrating, not doing the research. I mean, I think anyone would suggest it should be, if you don't know, find out. But that should be yeah. the, the end of that sentence. But if you don't know, vote no, seems to be a, a spirit of a movement that has been going on here for a long time. Oh, yes, that's a very, very, I mean, you have to admit, it's a very effective slogan. But that's the problem with, with referendums, because it's about the Constitution, which few people know anything about, and they don't understand, and they just feel that it might be threatening, it, you know, but they have no real idea of the Constitution. I mean, I've taught the Constitution, teaching politics. <laughs> it's pretty hard work. Um to teach the constitution, but most people know nothing about it. And so there's that caution. And if you can tap into that, you're halfway there. Mm, yeah. And it's stunning to me looking at your work and, and seeing that, you know, that there's probably some strong voices in the media today who have the belief that, that what happened back then wasn't even that big of a drama. It was just the way of the time in a way that people of the time would have heavily disagreed with. If, mm. if some of those heavy voices went back in time a few hundred years, they would have you know people who were committing these crimes, who were willfully committing these crimes. There was an acknowledgement and awareness that they were breaking the law, who, who maybe would have said, oh, no, no, that's not true at all. We know what we're doing is, we, we know we probably shouldn't be doing it, or we at least know they shouldn't be doing it. Um, and, and yet today there's almost a defending people 
who wouldn't have even tried to defend themselves. Yes, I mean, one of the things, and this is something which I'm talking to, to Christian groups on other occasions, you've got to realise that, that at this time, most people really were believing Christians and they often believed in the literal truth of the Bible. Mm -hmm. They were concerned about their conscience uh, they knew that killing people was wrong, that it, you know, it, it endangered their immortal souls, um, that, that this runs throughout the debate. So people weren't, there were people who were a bit gung-ho about it, but by and large, no. Uh, and many of them did it with reluctance. But remember, I mean, in Queensland, as elsewhere, it, it was a war. And uh, we know that that people kill in war, and they, you know, that is just an inevitable part of what is a war. And uh, it it was a war. It was a very uneven war. But in the nineteenth century, that's true of almost every war outside of Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, there were hundreds of small wars fought by the European imperial powers against native and tribal people all over the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Queensland and the north of Australia are simply part of that wider story. I think the point is of, of naming it that we still, as we've said earlier, that, that it's actually the, in the naming of a war we've lost that and that's, that's part of your research is bringing it back. But the, um, the, there, there was, um, in, in naming this as war, then that puts... That, that puts the ethics on a, on a different platform in some ways. You know, yeah. you have, if, if you are not going to call it a war, then it, then uh, then other things are applying. But in um, recognising that that Aboriginal nations were actually, they noticed patterns, there's records of noticing the patterns of defending their own country mm -hmm. um, and fiercely defending their own country and, and not other countries, that which which ties into this, the obvious sovereignty. Yes, um, and exactly. if the, the day, I guess the fear is if you actually name it as war, then you are acknowledging the sovereignty of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander nations. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And it makes the war very complicated because each small nation, and they were small nations, and they probably of long standing, um, they had to decide how to deal with the invasion in their own way. They may have known uh, a, a, a bit about what was what had happened elsewhere, but by and large, they had to deal with this on their own and just try and decide how they were going to deal with this and whether they would uh, accommodate, whether they would uh, try and come to agreements in effect, you know, local treaties, or whether they would try and fight and, and drive these people away. Uh, so it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a mosaic and it's a complicated one. Mm -hmm. But, um, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, as I've said before, well, if it's not war, it's murder. You know, there's, there's no other way uh, you know if they weren't involved in a war and the killing was a consequence of war which we we don't regard even now you know we, we never say that the the anzacs were murderers uh you know if 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 it is indeed if it's war yes if it's not war well it, it is it, it's murder mm. uh, and um we don't really want to accept that. Uh, 
that it was murder when it was indeed a series of small, often quite bitter wars. But because, you know, the idea it's just, you know, the struggle against the Aborigines, but it, it, it's a segmented war in into very many small uh, units. And there were people who uh, came to terms with the local people quite quickly. And uh, that's, and, and in a way, that was an advantage because then you could, uh, you could, well, you know, it's almost entirely male. You could have access to women, mm. but you could, above all, have a workforce. And mm. the workforce was very much better than, than feckless, wandering white fellows. Mm. Um, mainly because, you know, feckless white fellows would work for you for a few months and then piss off and never come back. Go to the nearest town and, and drink their, their check, cut their, cut their check out. Um, whereas the Aborigines was there because it was their country and they wanted to stay. Mm. So that, that's in a way presents a, a very, very different picture. And that sort of pastoral, you know, the working together of, of white pastoralism with uh, an Aboriginal labour force goes right through, you know, for 100 years, right through to, as I say, the 1960s when, uh, you know, it began to change. And look, your, your work uncovering the true history of these, these frontier wars is uh, just one of the great services, I think, to our national identity and and um, could not encourage people to look into it more. Uh, I want to, uh, as we move to the end of the conversation, ask specifically about the, the referendum that we are um, now rapidly approaching. Um, with this being the truth of Australia's history, why is it that, that you're convinced that the, the voice to parliament is, uh, is the clear path forward? Well, uh, you've got to know the provenance. Where did, where did the Uluru Statement come from? Mm. Came from a meeting arranged by Tony Abbott when he was Prime Minister and Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. Mm -hmm. He called together a meeting of 40 of the most prominent Indigenous people in the country. Uh, with the leader of the opposition, they had a meeting at Kirribilli House and they discussed this question of the Constitution. And it was decided that they would establish. Uh, a small, you know, a committee of, of distinguished people, white and black, who would then go out around the country uh, finding out what it was that people wanted. Initiated by Tony Abbott, carried forward by Malcolm Turnbull. Mm -hmm. That is, the Aboriginal people were commissioned by the government, conservative government, mm -hmm. paid for by the government, to go around the country, which they did over an eight-month period. They had meetings all over the country, Hobart to Thursday Island to, you know, the remote areas, a lot of it in remote communities. They used eight languages in the discussions and they gathered uh, and they had a series of something like 12 meetings uh, with 100 people each a thousand people, it was undoubtedly uh, by far the largest 
a serious attempt to find exactly what the community wanted. It's all recorded, and uh, this was all brought together at the meeting, the final meeting at Uluru, and they decided that they were what they wanted. That is, they wanted to be recognised in the Constitution, but they wanted a voice in the Constitution. That was one of the most uh, widely expressed views. They also wanted the idea of a, a coming together, the Makarata and truth-telling and eventually treaty-making. Now, having set the people off to see what they wanted in an unprecedented uh, gathering of information, um, the Uluru Statement summed it all up. Now, what strikes me is that there are people who now say, oh, they, should, they shouldn't have asked for that. Now, that is astonishing. They're being treated like children who don't know what's good for them. They took it seriously. They went out. They went all over all points of the southern sky and they gathered the information, uh, took the goodwill of the Australian people for granted and the integrity and honesty of the politicians. And the extraordinary thing is, I mean, the first real blow was when Malcolm Turnbull uh, said, no, you can't have that. Don't be silly. Now, that was an appalling thing. And they wouldn't treat... You know, if they treated them as people with whom you were having serious political and legal negotiations, you wouldn't have treated them with such disdain and such dismissiveness. And that is what has happened. And I mean, Abbott is among the worst. I mean, it was he that set the whole process in motion. Now he says, no, no, you, you don't really want that. You can't have anything in the Constitution. But all it is, I mean, one of the sad things is because it was probably in old Pearson's language, he talked about a voice to Parliament. If he had just said an advisory committee, it may have been much easier to explain. Mm. But the astonishing thing is there are hundreds of advisory committees to governments, hundreds of all sorts of things. Every, every uh, government department has advisory committees. There are also a vast industry of lobbyists. There are hundreds of them who work in Parliament House with money and contacts to have a voice to Parliament. It is an astonishing way in which it's been beaten up into something odd and different when there have been such Aboriginal advisory committees right back to 1967. The first one was set up um, by Harold Holt. The 1967 referendum had given the Commonwealth the power to make laws for the Aborigines, and so they quickly moved into that area. But they had very little expertise. So Harold Holt set up the first advisory committee and said he wanted them to be uh, his advisor, to have complete access to him and the other ministers and to, to oversee relations between the Commonwealth and the states. Now, that's 50 years ago. So it's, it is an astonishing story, and it's amazing how uh, it can be beaten up into something that is that is dangerous and threatening. Mm. Yeah, it's such a uh, 
brilliant way of articulating how we've ended up here with with fear and misinformation and misunderstanding the really the the central element of the whole thing as well as a probably a desire to score political points over one another um so once again we find the nation's history being pushed to the back in favor of of, you know winning the argument of the the week in politics um uh, uh, we are sitting here as as this gets closer and and we've all seen that the polling is looking concerning that this is likely Mm. not to get over the line without some big shifting towards the the very end which um those of us in favor are hoping will happen but if it if it doesn't get through if the no vote does win um what do you think a possible path forward for for this country and it's it's uh, a history that we still won't look at could possibly be do you do you hold any hope that there could be other breakthroughs in the the near future uh well that depends entirely on what the government decides to do i don't think they can say all right you buggers we'll just leave the slave and do it anyway i don't think that's politically possible but there is the question of a macarata uh a committee uh, you know a representative committee that's going to deal with all these issues and that could be done tomorrow and would almost certainly pass through the parliament but you see one of the things that is totally lacking in the discussion in australia is the international situation now people say why are these uh, this this one group being given rights that aren't available for other people well the main answer to that is that certainly for the last 50 years uh, international law and opinion has decided that in, in the indigenous people of the world 500 million of them all over the world have specific rights that are different from the rights of other people and the first uh, international document which established this goes right back to 1957 uh, the ILO Convention of, of, of 1957, which recognised Aboriginal land rights, which is the most distinctive thing that people have different. And that was undoubtedly what led to the, um, in particular, to the two land rights, well, one Aboriginal people taking up land rights in the 1960s into the 1970s in particular, and the two legislative land rights moves of that period, Whitlam's Northern Territory Land Rights Act, which passed under Fraser, 69, um, no, sorry, 66, oh, sorry, uh, uh, 1976, and Don Dunstan's land rights for the people of the Central Desert in 1981. Now, both Whitlam and Dunstan were influenced by the International Convention. Now, since then, there's been a a rapid development of the rights of Indigenous people. And Australia has been left behind. The only significant real change was the High Court's Mabo judgment. And the High Court realised that they had to bring Australian law into harmony with what was happening internationally. Now, when Australia was not doing anything, and that's you know it it it's been going on, these things were being discussed in the early 1980s. They were certainly being discussed in 1988 uh, when Hawke went to Barunga and had the Barunga statement, and he said yes, he would see about a treaty, 
And then there was the process of reconciliation for 10 years, and that was supposed to end with a treaty. And nothing happened. And here we are uh, another 20 years on. Now, in that time, comparable countries have done so much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As you or some of your listeners will know, New Zealand has, has and has for a long time, has designated seats for Māori, seven seats in the part one single house of parliament seven maori seats the danish parliament has seats set aside for the greenlanders uh, and the um, faroe islanders Uh, canada has started a new process of treaty making from 1975 this is for british columbia and the whole of the north they've signed 23 new treaties with with the indians and the inuit They've established a self-governing Inuit uh, province, a new province entirely self-governing in the North Arctic called Nunavut. The Scandinavian countries, the three Scandinavian countries, most like Australia, with the the Sami minority in the north, and this jumper is indeed a Sami jumper, uh, they have set up Sami parliaments that deal with, with Sami issues. Now, these, this has all happened with incomparable countries over the last 20 and 30 years when Australia has done almost nothing. Now, what the Uluru people asked for was very, very modest in comparison. Indeed. And compared and, to all of those significant changes, you know, to ask for um, to the ability to make representations about issues that concern Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, with no assurance that it will be acted upon, but just the the permission to ask representations is in in when contrasted globally, we can see what a small thing. To me, it seems a lack of maturity of a country that hasn't made taken these steps. No, exactly. Now we saw. Uh, the, I mean, the latest. I mean, the, the most important document is the uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, which passed the General Assembly with 140 countries voting for it in. 2007 it was actually uh, it was actually the speech was given by Les Meltzer of Brisbane uh, one of the great uh, Australian activists Uh, almost no one knows this was one of the most important achievements of Australian diplomacy of indigenous diplomacy and Australia under Kevin Rudd signed up to that convention that that uh, declaration and that contains all of these rights. But no one knows about this. I mean, we sign up to it, but we haven't actually done much about it. And what one of the, one of the things that could be done immediately would be that the Australian government would actually ratify uh, that UN document and encompass it in Australian law. That can be done just by Parliament. Mm. Uh, but whether that happens is another matter altogether. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a sobering conversation to realise just how far we have to go and, and that the biggest obstacle to, to getting there is the fact that a significant portion of the country still don't think there's a journey to even begin. Um, yes, so. That's right. I mean, so even, I mean, even the World Bank, <laughs> the World Bank puts out documents about the, look up the World Bank Indigenous policy. The World Bank... Has got a you know a, you know the indigenous people of the world have got special rights. That's recognised international law. It's recognised by international institutions. It's recognised by the World Bank, and the World Bank says 
470 million, I think the number is. These people are so important to the world. One, because they they live on much of the of the of the country in the world that is so important for conservation and they know how to manage it and defend it two they speak most of the small languages that have survived hundreds of them and therefore these people have absolutely significant rights now now whether the Uluru people felt we don't want to don't mention the United Nations, but they would know about these documents, but they decided not to even mention them. Mm. So the the discussion has been so parochial. Most people have no idea. Uh, when you say what what right have these people to get these special rights? Well, that's what the world thinks. <laughs> that's what the great majority of the world's population thinks. That is now international law. But yeah. that hasn't entered the discussion at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, that's, a, I think, a really helpful reminder as we do get closer to this referendum. And, and I think, um, Henry, I probably speak on behalf of, of all of our listeners by saying we're just so deeply grateful for your voice um, for many years in this space in um, what has been a long and arduous process of, of trying to move Australia forward and, and help us begin to have this, these very long overdue conversations. Um, look, the, the latest book is Truth Telling, History, Sovereignty and the Uluru Statement. Um, could not recommend it more highly as we get uh, closer to October the 14th. Thank you so much for all you've done, Henry, and, and for joining us for this conversation today. A great pleasure.